Hi everyone, it's Kino here. Thanks so much for joining me on Seek Up, the yoga inspiration show. I am so grateful for you and grateful to you for tuning in and sharing this journey with me. I am overwhelmed with how many people come up to me and say that they're really enjoying this type of communication, teaching, and sharing. So thank you so much for being a part of this journey of yoga, this journey of spirituality, this journey of mindfulness, this journey of seeking wisdom. More than anything else, this is meant to support the seeker's journey, meant to support you on the path. If you find this series of teaching really beneficial, the way that you can support this series is to become a member of the Om Stars yoga community and practice. We have decided to make this series free and available to everyone so that no matter where you are in the world, you can get the teachings that will hopefully provide sustenance for the seeker's journey. And for those of you that can become a member and give your support, please know that I appreciate it. And I'll see you on the mat real soon. Hi, everyone. It's Kino here. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Seek Up, the Yoga Inspiration Show. Well, I wanted to invite an expert in constitutional law to have a discussion with me about the recent series of Supreme Court decisions. However, I have not been able to find one. So first, let me start off by saying I am no expert in constitutional law, and yet I feel like I want to discuss a little bit of the momentous and historic Supreme Court decision in the United States of America where the right to abortion has been overturned by the overturning of the historic Supreme Court case of Roe versus Wade. And I have a lot of different thoughts about this that I hope will spar or spur discussion. Um, the first of which is that rather than uh, sort of cordoning off people into these polarized extremes, my intention is to really foster a sense of dialogue. It always, always um, encourages me when I speak with people who disagree with me and we're able to keep a sort of civil tone. This for me is the foundation of what democracy is, that we can engage uh, with each other, especially when we disagree and in some ways find perhaps a compromise, a middle ground, or a sense of tolerance for those individuals that may fall outside of the realm of what we would normally think, see, do, or be. And this includes whatever side of the spectrum politically, religiously, culturally, racially, or any other of the different um, intersections that we may find ourselves of privilege or disadvantage in society. It is my intention to create, uh, you know, food for thought so that we can think about um, things from potentially a few different perspectives. So the first place I think I'd like to start is this question of life. You know, what is life? When does life begin? And this is a question that I think is something that actually cannot be answered by the state, you know, by a nation state, by a government. You know, it's not the role, in my opinion, of government to define when does life begin. The government sort of steps in once life is kind of, you know, verified. Once you are alive and going around and you're existing in the world, then the government kind of steps in. But this question of what is life? Where does life begin? Well, this brings in religion. 
And this is sort of, I guess, the crux of what so many people are so passionately arguing in one way or another. But I think if we kind of really dig into what is life, what is life, where does, where does life begin, then we can kind of uh, uh, sort of use that as a, as a touchstone to explore other thoughts and, and to really think about what is the meaning of, of the soul, the soul's journey, a person's journey. One thing that I uh, think is extremely important to mention is that there may be different concepts of life, spirit, soul, humans, persons, personhood that exist within a broad spectrum of society. So I'm not here to provide the answers, but instead to provide food for thought and maybe share, you know, my own opinions on things or my own perspective, which may be uh, insightful for you, or if it doesn't work for you, then, hey, we can agree to disagree. So why don't we start off with uh, what is, I guess, the, the, the sort of definition of life that's sort of coming up and in, in, in very specifically in regards to uh, the pro-life community. So the definition of life uh, is, the, is sort of the idea of when the soul was created. And in the most traditional form of Christianity, definitely from in Catholicism, it is believed traditionally that the soul is created kind of either at the moment of conception or kind of when, um, you know, when, when a life begins. And so this is found in the Old Testament in Genesis, which is Genesis 2-7. And the quote there is, God did not make a body and put a soul into it like a letter into an envelope of dust. Rather, he formed man's body from the dust. Then by breathing divine breath into it, he made the body of dust live. The dust did not embody a soul, but it became a soul, a whole creature. Um, and so then this has been, this particular passage has been used to sort of argue that, well, the, um, the soul is created at the moment of conception. So therefore life begins at conception. And this is a religious argument that again, cannot be scientifically verified, but this is what many people who uh, consider them, themselves Christians to, uh, believe. And I'm not here to argue against that, but I want people to understand that this is the sort of religious basis that many people are making their decision of saying, well, this is that like life begins at this moment. So this is their definition of life. Now, traditionally, I've also heard and read uh, that uh, in, a, in the time when modern medicine was not so good at saving the lives of, of, of newborn babies, that many people did not consider or count the child as having been alive until it had been born and had taken a few breaths and then survived a little bit of time. That, you know, that that, that, that unborn child was actually not considered a, a person until they became born and actually were alive because the infant mortality rate was so high. So you couldn't count on that baby being born uh, to the same degree that we can in our current contemporary era. Now, that's something that's sort of a more pragmatic view of life, but it's definitely not a religious view of life. Um, but we want, or the definition of life and when the soul begins and this sort of thing. But we want to really think about the unique cultural moment that we're in. And we sit in this moment where we have the heroic tools of modern medicine to save the lives of premature babies and potentially to decrease infant mortality. So we live in a really blessed time in that way. It's so, so, 
so wonderful. Um, in times past, the, the the medical care that was available was just not able to save the the lives of so many uh, children. So this is something to pause and, and give thanks for, you know. So now we have to also think about where does life begin from other perspectives. Right? Well, if we take a look at the teaching of the Buddha, the idea here is that well, gosh. Uh, the whole concept of me and mine is a delusion. So this concept of a permanent sense of self is kind of what the teaching of the Buddha seeks to kind of, you know, uh, help you uh, be free of. So how do we come up with when does life begin? Well, the teaching of the Buddha shares um, the doctrine of reincarnation with the teaching of the traditional Sanatana Dharma or the, the, the lineage of Hinduism. And, you know, I practice yoga and meditation and I've had my own personal sort of experiences of what you could call, you know, life after life or the unseen world. And I have to say that I don't believe that life begins at concept. It's my personal belief. And again, feel welcome to disagree with me. I, again, I think this is a question that can really only be answered personally and based on your own morals, your own religion, your own relationship with God and spirit, and not something that the state can really interact with. This, we'll get into that in a moment. So I'll just share my personal beliefs and gosh, maybe some of you <laughs> will, you know, cancel me after this, but I hope not. I hope you really get the sense of, I respect your point of view if you believe life begins at conception, you know, that's, I respect that and I hope you'll respect mine if you don't share that. So I genuinely believe that each of us is an eternal being. I believe in the eternality of the whole creation, the whole universe. And I believe that we have been born before and that we have lived on this planet, maybe even other planets before, and that when we die, we will continue and that our, our some some elements of us will continue. And I, I believe in the eternality of, 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 of who we are, of the existence. And I also believe that this falls perfectly well within um, the notion of uh, divinity, the notion of God. And so for me, the idea of crossing over into um, the afterlife and potentially being born again I, I find a way for myself personally to, um, kind of make peace with that and really see that it is, that, that, that there is this potential. So for me, life doesn't begin at conception. Um, life begins eternally. Life, for me, there, life is just, it just is. It's sort of this grand universal isness that has always been, always will be, and, um, is and has always been. So, what is life in that concept? You know, it's this beginningless flow in which there are a variety of experiences and in which there are universal laws that govern this kind of uh, experience in the universe. So um, in that regard, I feel that, 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 that it is perhaps not possible to say life begins at conception. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't respect the life, you know, that there's a being worthy of respect, whether the being is just, a, you know, a replicating cell or the being is, you know, five years old, 18 years old or 80 years old, that this uh, be all beings are worthy of respect and value. And we have to negotiate that. So this question of life 
Um, when does life begin, whether life begins at conception or whether we're created at some time in the past or whether it is a beginningless flow and we incarnate and reincarnate and become discarnate and evolve on a, a process of liberation that leads somewhere. I think it's, it's um, a very worthy investigation for every spiritual seeker to kind of sit with this question of, of you know, what is life? What is the opposite of life? I think there's no opposite of life. There's birth and there's death. But life, you know, I feel that, you know, to be born is maybe to you. There's a wonderful quote from, uh, uh, oh, I, um, I'm not remembering his name, um, but a spiritual teacher who says that the idea of birth is like waking up from as waking up from a dream, having never been to sleep. And death is the experience of going to sleep and realizing that the dream doesn't end until perhaps you again wake up from a dream having never gone to sleep and then it starts again so there's this kind of cycle so we see these kind of you know countless threads of of, of life on on the earth and whether we believe that each individual soul was created and then lives eternally after that sort of breath of God moment of conception, or we believe that all souls are kind of on some universal path uh, of, you know, increasing consciousness and liberation, then that's something we can sort of evaluate for ourselves. Now, I think you can hear that I <clears throat> believe quite strongly in the separation of church and state. This was written into the United States Constitution, that the separation of church and state is one of the foundational, fundamental principles of the United States of America. The, the original, um, so many people have been uh, part of the founding dream that really verifies and confirms the need of separation of church and state. This is one of the founding principles of the United States of America uh, that stood in stark contrast to the unity of, of, of church and state, which still exists in the constitutional monarchy of the United Kingdom. And we know that many of the settlers in the northern states of the, of, you know, the, 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 the Union of the United States of America, um, uh, we were uh, from uh, the British uh, descendants and British colonialists, and they uh, sort of rejected the idea of church and state. So this is one of the founding principles of this country, the separation of church and state. And I, I firmly believe that this is a very important um, separation because there are questions that religion can answer and there are questions that the state can answer. So what can the state deal with? Well, the state has to deal with things that are manifest, things that are actual, things that are tactile, measurable, verifiable, rational, and have some basis in what we could say is a, a, a sort of shared experience of reality. So if we go back into the competing interests in this question of right to life versus right to choice, um, then I think we can at least agree that the viability of uh, the unborn begins at a particular time. So with our heroic efforts, we have, you know, we can, in, in medicine and the wonderful advancements in medicine, we can now save the lives of more unborn children, which is so beneficial for so many. Um, there is, however, a point at which that viability is, is, is completely um, impossible. So I think that at the very least, we could agree uh, that the state potentially has no uh, bounds to enforce any laws on, um, you know, a non-viable, uh, unborn being. Uh, so accordingly, separation of church and state means that the state has to 
only enforce laws on those things which are scientifically verifiable, which are in some way manifest, which are in some way have a form. Now, what that also means is that the the woman, the pregnant woman or pregnant person, I should say these days, um, so the pregnant being is a living being, a citizen even of this country, the United States of America, governed by the laws of the United States of America. So I'd like to uh, bring in um, another really important clause in our uh, Constitution, um, which is, uh, first of all, if you haven't, if you haven't read uh, the, the first clause in the Bill of Rights, this is the establishment. It's called the Establishment Clause, which defines the separation of church and state. Um, this simply says, so the first clause in the Bill of Rights states that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. And we uh, interpret this as the separation of church and state. And so this is where uh, the sort of foundation of the um, previous discussion. Now, the, the next place in the Constitution that I want to draw our attention towards is the idea of what is called the Equal Protection Clause in the Constitution. Um, and this is uh, from what's called the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution. I'd like to uh, read that to you now. And this says, uh, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States of America. Nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny any person within its jurisdictions the equal protection of the laws. So this is often referred to as the Equal Protection Clause. And this is a very important um, <clears throat> clause, very important part of the United States Constitution, because let me go back to, again, we're talking about citizens of the United States of America. So at what point does someone become a citizen? We don't issue passports to unborn children. We issue a passport, a, a declaration of citizenship, a birth certificate happens at the moment of birth, not at the moment of conception. So at the moment that the being is alive, at that moment that being is viable and has been demonstrated to be alive by our, uh, you know, can stand on its own, has its own body, that that moment, that being is considered a citizen of the United States of America. You know, in the, in the United States, all you need to do to be a citizen is be born in this country, or you can be a descendant, of course, of someone who is a citizen, but you can be born in this country and you can get a U.S. passport and it's the declaration of U.S. citizenry. So that means that you would fall under this. Again, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. Mm -hmm. So what are privileges or immunities? Privileges. Well, we take a look at that. What are the privileges of being a citizen of the United States of America? Well, if we go into our uh, very famous constitution and we go into the sort of declaration of what it means to be American, um, you know, we could say North American, we can say uh, citizen of the United States. Maybe I come up with a new word besides American. I don't know if you can say, you know, like USA and right. So we have the idea that each uh, that the founding principles would, of, of the United States are, are equality and liberty. And I know it's, it's we're still not there yet, but these are our founding principles that, you know, every every citizen is guaranteed the right to life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And I'll repeat that again. The citizens are given the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So again, who are the citizens? The citizens are those, once you, once the child is born, that being becomes a citizen of the United States. But we must remember that the person who is birthing that child has lived their life for years 
uh, as a citizen of the United States of America, by denying a citizen of the United States of America privileges or any act that could potentially interfere with their liberty, their 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 right to life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, without due process of law, violates the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. And my understanding, and again, I'm not a constitutional expert, but this is very clearly how I read um, the the intention of, uh, 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 of, the, of the nature and letter and even spirit of the law. Um, I really invite anybody who's listening to this that is an expert in constitutional and wants to come on and talk to me about this, please send me a message. This is not my area of specialty, but I'm, I'm very interested in it. Um, and I, I, um, I think this is a very, it's like, it was almost like a constitutional crisis right now that we're facing in the United States of America. Maybe I'm being a little dramatic. Maybe we'll just turn the page on this and get over it. But I, I really think it's a, it's, it's a crisis of what, what democracy is right now. So if we think again about, not giving women the opportunity to have access to birth control, to not giving women the the access to have um, uh, the option to terminate a pregnancy that was initiated through rape or incest, seems to be a very clear deprivation of the right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, Mm -hmm. at least for the woman. So if someone supports this, then they're de facto saying that the woman or person who um, becomes pregnant um, isn't you know, privileged to the same uh, rights as other citizens of the United States of America, which would again violate the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. So I um, obviously side with the liberal justices who were in the dissent. Um, And I was reading a theory of justice uh, where the concept of the legitimacy of justice was presented in regards to democratic institutions. And the theory of, of, of justice that was presented is that legitimacy is for the losers. And I know that might sound a little bit lame right now, but let me go into what it's about. See, when you're on the losing side of a court decision, if you can respect the legitimacy of the process and you can respect the way that the uh, deliberations happened and then the, the jurisprudence seems to make sense to you, you might not agree with it. You may be on the losing side, but you can respect it. And you respect the laws of the land. However, when the legitimacy is questioned, and I would say that the legitimacy of the uh, Supreme Court is definitely questioned by the uh, grievous means by which the three justices uh, were uh, sort of stacked by the previous president. Um, and if, you, if you're not familiar with that, then uh, in the last year that Barack Obama was the president, he had uh, proposed that um, uh, Merrick Garland become uh, be nominated for a Supreme Court position, but uh, the, Mitch McConnell, who was the uh, leader of the Senate, uh, declined and said, well, an election is coming up. Well, Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away very shortly before the election in 2020, and uh, Mitch McConnell sort of uh, uh, didn't abide by his own laws and his own uh, moral compass, and he didn't wait until after the election so that the new president could submit a Supreme Court justice. He went ahead and rammed that through. So we could say that this was a bit of unfair, uh, uh, you know, double standards that were applied. And so this decreases the legitimacy. You know, this says, well, hey, uh, this becomes political. And the whole purpose of the checks and balances system in the United States of America is that we have an elected president who's the executive branch, and we have the Congress, which includes elected officials comprising of the United States 
States House of Representatives and the Senate. And the House of Representatives is based on population, and the Senate is two senators for each state. And then we have the court system, and the, and the court system is the idea that's supposed to operate independently and is not politicized. But unfortunately, the legitimacy of that is what's been called into question over the last uh, period of time. That legitimacy is important because if the losing side is the majority of people in the United States of America, which is in this case the vast, the, the majority, I think close to 60%, maybe more, of the United States, according to polling, supports a woman's right to choose. Uh, and they're, so they're the losers. So the losers are the majority um, of people. And the Supreme Court uh, doesn't uh, uh, follow a standard that really shows a deep sense of legitimacy, uh, then how can, how can, you know, we support the court any longer? This brings into question of what, what is justice in this concept and how can we, um, back laws which, uh, seem to be illegitimate. So there's a, a theory of justice from, a a, a, a philosopher, a thinker, um, John Rawls. And I'd like to read this quote. It's a bit heady, but it's, I think, quite important in regards to uh, the current situation we're in. So John Rawls says, justice is the first virtue of social institutions, as truth is of systems of thought. A theory, however elegant and economical, must be rejected or revised if it is untrue. Likewise, laws and institutions, no matter how efficient and well-arranged, must be reformed or abolished if they are unjust. Each person possesses an inviolability founded on justice that even the welfare of society as a whole cannot override. For this reason, justice denies that the loss of freedom for some is made right by a greater good shared by others. It does not allow that the sacrifices imposed on a few are outweighed by the larger sum of advantages enjoyed by many. Therefore, in a just society, the liberties of equal citizenship are taken as settled. The rights secured by justice are not subject to political bargaining or to the calculus of social interests. So now if just, so again, if we think about this concept of what justice is and what equal citizenship is, if justice is the first virtue of social institutions and justice seems to not be served by treating women and pregnant people as non-equal citizens to others, then what do we do with unjust social institutions? If we look at the old democracies of the past, of the democracies of ancient Rome and ancient Greece, we can see that the unequal treatment of persons, particularly women and pregnant women, led or contributed, you could say, or, or, or was one of the, the injustices that was pointed out in the in the downfall of the, um, you know, these empires. Of course, there are many other things that were wrong. There's, you know, of, of, I, again, I'm not an expert in ancient history. I, I've, I've read recently that there that that, that abortion um, was was also illegal uh, in times in these ancient times. So we think that it's only something that's happening now. You see, according to um, the Greco-Roman reproductive philosophies, the mother constituted little more than a passive receptacle for male sperm. Um, at best, she contributed sort of menstrual blood to conception, um, but the idea of the woman as kind of this earthbound receptacle kind of created an easy analogy for farmers sowing seeds. And once the woman became kind of in these old Greco-Roman times became visualized as a plot of fertile land, then um, there was an easy congruency between fetus and plant. And these philosophers 
allowed at the time, and this is interesting in, in regards to this question of when is life. So these philosophers allowed that a fetus was a living thing, but was not given personhood. Nevertheless, because the woman wasn't considered to be an equal citizen, then paternal interests, civic interests, and the fetal potentiality outweighed any uh, claim of sort of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that the woman had in these ancient uh, sort of Greco-Roman times. So we can think about who we are as a state in our contemporary era. We can think about what the basis of the United States of America is. We can think about what our laws actually say in regards to the equal protection of um, all citizens who are declared equal under the law. And then we can think about what action we can take. So this is, I really feel that perhaps you can make an individual decision that you believe life begins at conception. Great. So then an abortion does not uh, move into alignment with your views. It's not for you. Someone else might say, well, I believe in the eternality of life. Um, so therefore, this being who almost incarnated uh, could get another shot. <laughs> and, and, there may, and then someone else could say, well, I believe that life begins only in the first breath, and that up until that moment, that there's no guarantee of life. So therefore, this person would, uh, you know, be able to morally and ethically have an abortion at different times. So I, I think that it's not something that the government should really be uh, involved in, uh, according to my reading of what uh, the founding principles of the United States are and, and the idea of the separation of church and state, as well as the equal protection of all the citizens of the United States. I hope you'll take this as kind of food for thought. Again, I respect your views. If you are, if you believe that life begins at conception. I respect your views if you believe life begins uh, at the first breath. I respect your views if you believe that life is eternal. And uh, if there's something else out there, I would absolutely respect your views. Um, the idea being that the, the reason we have separation of church and state in the United States of America is that there's room for all these views. But if religion begins to, if religion begins to craft the laws of the land, we no longer have a democratic republic, but we have a religious republic. And this is not the founding principles of what this country is. And I love the United States. I'm super grateful to be a citizen of the United States and live here and get all the privileges and benefits that are afforded of being a, a citizen of this country. And I'm thankful for that. And I am, I want to up, I want our country to live up to its constitution. And I, I, I want us to have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for all citizens who are deemed equal under the law. It might take us some years or some generations to do that, but I really hope we're on the right track. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS, and that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat 
And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit, which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.